This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Welcome to episode 47 of the Paw and Order podcast and our first podcast of 2020. Joined today by my co-host Peter Sankoff. Hey, Peter. Camille, hello and happy new year. But right away, Camille, sometimes I feel like there's just a lack of respect demonstrated on your part because like the introduction of my co-host Peter Sankoff, like really... It should be my Clawby award-winning co-host, Peter Sankoff, Camille. Isn't that the proper designation right now? Mm, I guess it is. I guess you're right. Listeners, all of our Christmas Best dreams came true. podcast. Oh, my God, did they? It was like sugar plums, mistletoe, all wrapped into one, Camille. It was. It was. We found out on New Year's Eve that Paw and Order had won a Best Podcast Award from the Clawby Awards, which, as we talked about previously, it's uh, an organization that gives out awards to Canadian law bloggers and podcasters and so on. So we're pretty proud. So I insist, Camille, on being uh, referred to from now on as Clawby Award-winning Peter Sankoff. The award-winning Peter I don't know if I can do Sankoff. that for you, but I'll try. I'll try, Camille. <gasps> All wow. Right. No, seriously. I mean, thanks to our listeners who wrote in and nominated us. I, I really believe it. I believe they commented, Camille, on our witty banter. Did you like that? They mentioned our witty banter. Informative, but also the witty banter. Thanks, Clobbies. We appreciate that. <laughs> Here to please. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, no, we're really pleased. So that's the fourth one for me, Camille. I'm worried that like eventually I might get into the Hall of Fame, which means we're no longer eligible after that. Oh. You know that, huh? That's the biggest risk. I don't even know because I won two. Well, I won two clobbies before I was involved with you, so I won them for like video blogging. So now it's like I got four. So after this, it's like usually when you get a certain number, they don't like just giving you one every year. So they might bounce us, Camille, but not yet, not yet. Well, maybe they'll bounce you, but I'll keep getting them. That would be fine with me. I guess so. I guess you could, but it really it would be like it would be like a B. You know, like half a claw be, Camille, or a claw. That would be better. It would be a claw. I'll take a claw. Because without me, it's just a claw. Yeah. It's not a claw B. You, you can't get the full thing. All right. Anyway, it was, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was really nice. It's always a nice honor, um, really, because there are a lot of good podcasts out there. So it was really uh, quite an honor just to get nominated and then quite an honor to win Best Podcast, Camille. Yay! Woo! We'll post a link so you can see some of the other winners because there's a lot of cool legal blogs and podcasts that you folks might want to check out. Yeah. So what else has been uh, going on with you, Camille, aside from big clobby wins? Well, it's been a while. So we, we took an episode off for the, the holiday season. Um, you know what happened there? We had our Ottawa holiday party. That was good. We had a great end of year period. Um, all I got for Christmas was a nasty cold. So finally I'm over that, but it took about two weeks. Um, Boo. 
Yeah. Oh, one cool thing. I don't think we've talked about this yet on the podcast is that Animal Justice has moved into our official new office space at the Center for Social Innovation in the Annex in Toronto. It's this great space. There's tons of awesome nonprofits there, people working for a better world. So we feel totally at home. Yeah, well, again, you sort of missed the point. I mean, the the I, I like the office and all, Camille, but the best part of the new office, let's be frank about it, is that it's like walking distance to like arguably the best vegan, you know, joint in Toronto, which is the amazing Caribbean flavored One Love. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. One Love is like <laughs> two blocks away from us. If you're in Toronto and you haven't been to One Love yet, please go immediately. Um, it's amazing. It's One a Love place. is like, it's it's called One Love, but we give it lots of love. In fact, we should get them as a sponsor because we're just going to keep <laughs> talking about them every time we visit Toronto. It's because it's like their roti. I, I highly recommend. I always get a TVP roti. I know you get like the tofu and potatoes Barbecue or rice, tofu. which is fine. Yeah, it's good. I, I like the TVP roti. That thing is like rocking. Yeah, I mean, you can't go wrong with anything on the menu. So that's cool. That's within walking distance. But also within walking distance, Peter, there's like a zillion other vegan restaurants. There's a Pie Calypse, which does vegan pizza. They're awesome. There's Virtuous Pie, which isn't too far away. Um, There's like all kinds of vegan options at non-vegan places. There's a new globally local fast food place. So, you know, I bring my lunch pretty much every day, but we're not starving for options if one did want to go out. It's pretty good. Good to know for my next visit that I won't go hungry. Yes. Yes, indeed. And how was your Christmas break? Uh, Well, I had my kids alone for Christmas, which is um, because my wife was overseas. So it was either um, a real blessing or like completely and utterly exhausting. You can guess which. Yeah, probably a bit (laughs) of column A, a bit of column B. That's exactly right. It was calling me because there were some really great moments. My wife left right after Christmas. So we all had Christmas together. And like we had an amazing New Year's. If I gave you the high points, we did like a dance party, the three of us. It was really special. There were some great moments. We had some time in the country. It was really nice. We spent a lot of time with the dog, Chili. But I mean, if anyone asks me like how my break was, I'm going to like literally punch them in the face (laughs) in a nonviolent way. Just because like there was no break. I had... You know, it's essentially, as people like to point out, oh, now you see what your wife does all the time. And I'm like, yeah, I see. Now I do see what my wife does. But I had to work the whole time, too, because I had exams to mark and a case to work on. So I was doing both my wife's job and part time my job. So it was it was challenging. Plus, the kids weren't in school. So like they were home all the time. So it was like it was a it was a an interesting Christmas. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> Luckily the weather was was good as opposed to now Camille where as we record this it's a balmy minus 36 oh, in Edmonton. Oh, so glad I live in Toronto. With a minus minus 44 wind chill. So like I walked to the LRT today which is about a 15 minute walk from my house. Oh, I should tell you about this, Camille. I don't think you need this in Toronto quite the way I do. Um, But anyway, now that we're talking, I'll tell you about the best Boxing Day purchase I made. Um, So anyway, so I'm wearing long johns. My face is wrapped up. I got my super cruelty-free coat. It's not a woolly, but it's a super oaxley. It's a super cruelty-free coat. And it's like I'm totally wrapped up, and you're still feeling it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's going through to your limbs? Yeah. It's insane. 
But what I did, the only thing that saves me now on these walks, I bought Camille. They were 50% off on Boxing Day. Highly recommended to all our listeners. We should get another sponsorship here, Camille. These silicone rechargeable hand warmers. What? They are like... I'm not kidding. They're the best purchase I think I've ever made. Every once in a while you make a purchase and you're like, this is just freaking changes your life. I'm not kidding when I say these have changed my life because you recharge them at home. They fit in the palm of your hand. So you put your hand in your glove and they fit in with you and then you put them on maximum heat. And I'm telling you, Camille, I could literally walk for three hours and my hands don't get cold. It's, it's amazing. And I don't know about you, but like if your hands are warm, it's a lot it's a lot easier to, you know, be warm. And I just feel it makes all the difference in the world. And then the best part is, Camille, are you ready for this? Yeah. They also operate as backup batteries for your iPhone. So, like, if they still have charge, you can back up your iPhone. It's really crazy. Wow. I love them. They were only, they were only like, 30 bucks on uh, Boxing Day. I think they're regularly, like, 60. They're very high quality. They recharge quickly. And, like, for any type of outdoor activity where you're worried about your hands getting cold, Best things I ever bought. Wow, I'm so happy to know about these because I am literally always cold. No matter where I am, I'm, mm. I'm cold. So I'm telling you, Camille, they would have done it for us that day at the Christmas market. Those would have been the best. Wow, cool. Really happy to know about this. And maybe we'll post a link in the show notes for our listeners who also live in cold Absolutely. places. Absolutely. Absolutely. And finally, I should point out now that I'm back, I started teaching my animals in the law course, which is really nice because like... Nobody's heard about my animals on the law course since the early days of Paw and Order, Camille. If you remember, going way back into the archives, episode two was a live hit for my animal law class. And that was in 2018. And I, did, I don't teach it every year. I teach it every second year. So as a result, I haven't talked about my animal law class in like almost two years. So I'm really excited to be back teaching it again. Oh, neat. Well, maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll include some content from that on the podcast at some point as the semester progresses. Yeah, we've had we've had two classes uh, so far. Sorry, three classes so far, and it's been really good. We got into a whole thing on whaling um, last day, and uh, really, really good discussions. I think the students are into it. It's a, it's a group of eleven, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's been good so far. I'm always optimistic that the discussions will continue to be productive, and it's a nice mix of people. That's what I like, Camille. I have the real animal lovers and the animal sort of liker skeptics. Yeah, the so people who, nice are, who need to be convinced, which is a, it's a great opportunity to show them the reality of what happens and why they should be on board. So exactly. That's really exactly. good. Well, I got to say, yeah. you know, one of the things that gives me lots of hope doing this work, which can be kind of dismal at times, is how many awesome students there are across the country. People in law school, people who've just finished and are articling or in the early years of practice, but the future is looking very bright based on the interest in the field. Yes, and of course, my animal law class is going to come up a few more times, probably on this podcast, because like we're going to have some guests in my animal law class, usually remotely, I, I believe... We've managed to secure the executive director of animal justice. Is that right? To come into a class? I think we did. Um, we are trying to work out to get animal justice's staff lawyer, um, um, Caitlin Mitchell, to actually come out for a, a lecture um, and and give a lecture in addition to uh, to uh, give a lecture at the law school in addition to hosting in my class. So we've got a whole group, bunch of other people, too, coming in. It's going to be great. Really Your excited. students are totally spoiled this year, and that's awesome. I love it. Yeah, as they should be. Good. And uh, yeah, so that's what's been going on with me, Camille. Anything else uh, with you? 
You know, not much. We've got, uh, well, we've got a catch-up episode today, so we've got a few in the news items, and we've also got a great interview coming at you. But before we get into that, I want to remind everyone that you can support us on Patreon. The Paw and Order podcast is now at $173 per month, so we're getting close to covering the cost of producing the podcast, but we still need uh, a bit more funding to reach our $200 goal. You can help us do that at patreon.com slash order. Donate as little as a dollar a month, and there's all kinds of cool prizes and ways that we recognize you for participating. Yes, and we are uh, uh, constantly talking about ways to upgrade special gifts. I believe we have a meeting coming up at the end of this month. We want to do a little more for our Patreon supporters because the truth is we need the Patreon supporters, Camille. It's really important to ensure that at the very least this podcast remains uh, cost neutral. Um, we both do it for free, of course, but we don't want any of the costs to be borne uh, by Animal Justice. And there are affiliated hosting costs, editing costs, etc., with the podcast. And of course, if we do happen to turn a slight uh, profit, Camille being the wrong word, it just goes to help the great work of Animal Justice. Yeah, so it's a win-win situation. And reminder as well that if you like listening to this podcast, and I assume that you do because you're tuning in right now, you can leave us a review. It really does a, a good job of helping other people find the podcast. It boosts our ratings. Right now we have a five-star rating on um, Apple Podcasts, which is great, and lots of reviews. I'm going to read part of um, a new review by somebody called uh, Vegan Meal, one at a time who says, they had me laughing so hard with their law and order spoof at the beginning. I personally think animal welfare is simply a subset of animal rights that doesn't go far enough. Looking forward to their opinions on this, as well as evolving legal developments, especially relating to farmed animals who suffer so much in such huge numbers. And an update, our government just suddenly announced an egg-gag law. I've been in shock, but so glad Paw and Order came out with a discussion on the timing of this law and whether a constitutional challenge is worth pursuing. Go paw in order. I'd likely buy a teed an event. Well, thanks for that great review. And maybe we'll be offering teas before too long. And maybe we'll be having an event, Camille. I still have this dream. Maybe we'll talk about it at the production. I have this dream that for that we'll do like because we did a live paw in order at uh, at the conference, and uh, frankly, I thought the interest was high, and I thought it went really well. Maybe we could one day do a live paw in order, try and wrestle up all kinds of supporters from the Toronto area, see how it goes. Maybe we can, you know, I don't think we could do it anywhere else, but certainly in Toronto, we could probably fill a room. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, you never know. We do have and another sell conference. Some t-shirts. <laughs> we do have a conference coming up in Toronto this fall that we'll share more about in the. Coming weeks, but the Canadian Animal Law Conference will be here this time around. Yeah, sure, but I'm talking about a separate event, Camille. I think we're big enough to like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm dreaming. <laughs> but I like to think we could I don't know, we'll make it a small room, Camille. We could like fill a room, put it out to our supporters, right? Put it out to Twitter that we're gonna do a live pawn order and sell some t shirts. And I don't know, maybe we can get 20, 30 people there. All right. If not, hey, my if not, Camille. My dreams will be dashed, and I won't bring it up again. How's that? All right. And we should uh, finish off this part of the show by talking about our friends at The Grinning Goat. Camille, um, can I tell you who got a Christmas gift from The Grinning Goat this year? <gasps> Was it you? It may well have been me, Camille. Actually, I can't remember if it was a Christmas gift or a birthday gift because my birthday is right around Christmas. But I can tell you, I got something from The Grinning Goat, and I'm really happy about it. So thank you to my friends at The Grinning Goat. Uh, I had been mentioning, you know what the thing is, Camille? It's crazy. I don't know if you have this problem. So, like, I have multiple bags 
right? I don't know about you. Like, I have multiple bags. And, and what I mean by bags are bags for when I do work-related things. Okay. Do you have this problem or you just have one bag? No, I have, I have like three or four. Okay, so so what I have is like I have this amazing backpack that I like that I actually use for work generally. So when I'm like going to my university office or even my law office, I like the backpack because it just doesn't put any stress on my shoulders, right? Because I have like, you know, neck problems, head problems, all that. So then I've always had a couple of years ago for my birthday, I got a mat and nat bag, like a really, you know, one of the nice mat and nat sort of dressy office bags. Okay, yeah. They're nice. But do you know those? The ones with the pockets in the front? Totally. Yeah. So I love that bag, right? And I used to take that bag. So that's my kind of, I'm going to something officially and I don't want to wear a backpack bag, right? Yeah. So I use that bag. But what I've noticed, here's the problem, Camille. So I have been using that bag for whenever I go somewhere officially, which is usually on a trip to Toronto. And what I have found is, as much as I love that bag, it's a terrible airplane carry-on bag. And, and the reason is just, it's too small. So, like, once my computer and my cord are in there, I can't really fit anything else. And it's just a little bit too small. So, when I went into Grin and Goat a couple of months ago with my wife, I noted this very smart-looking, bigger, sort of, also very nice formal work bag. But it's it's bigger. It's like it's got a lot more size and compartments. And that's what I got for Christmas. So an amazing bag that you will be seeing very soon, Camille. We can talk about it on our February podcast after I've come to Toronto. Oh, no, you won't be seeing it. I'm not seeing you in Toronto. I keep forgetting. Damn. Oh. I am coming to Toronto, but Camille is... I, I don't even want to use the word. We'll use it on the next show. We know what she's doing, ladies and gentlemen. She's going somewhere fabulous and just doing her thing. Yeah, that's right. We'll talk about it later. Um, okay, well, all that to say is that if, I'm glad you got this bag. That's great. But if you're listening and you want a bag or anything else from the Grinning Goat. Oh, yeah, Grinning Goat. You can use the discount code PAW15 for 15% off grinninggoat.ca. I highly recommend the Matt and Nat bags. They are fantastic. Good. All right, on to the news. We've just got a couple pieces. Yes, in the news. The news has been a little bit, uh, a little bit slow over the holiday season, I think. But I want to first highlight, a, a, you know, a good piece in the Toronto Star about the proposed egg egg legislation in Ontario. Which, of course, if you're paying attention, you already know that it would uh, target animal rights advocacy and specifically make it illegal to expose cruelty on farms and slaughterhouses and transport trucks. So the the star takes a look at some of the claims that the government makes and the way the government is trying to portray this legislation is uh, in terms of biosecurity, so protecting animals from getting diseases and also protecting farmers from trespass on their property. Now, of course, trespass is already illegal, so this bill doesn't do anything new in that regard, but it does jack up fines. And the biosecurity element, you know, sounds kind of superficially appealing to people and like something that no one really would oppose. But I'm interviewed in the article and I make the point that if this is about biosecurity, then why would they stop employees who are legally on people's property and following biosecurity protocols on farms? Why would they stop them from becoming whistleblowers if they see illegal animal cruelty? So I'm glad to see the star paying attention. Uh, you know, this, there, there's a lot going on with egg gag right now. If you're looking for an update, uh, Ontario, the legislature is on hiatus until February 18th. So I expect at that point we'll start to see it moving again. And I'm going to hop on my hobby horse here. But if you haven't met with your MPP yet, it's a great time oh, to yes. do that. 
Well, I know one MPP you might want to talk with, Camille. I saw, I don't know about you, but I got a very different view about this legislation on Twitter. I saw somebody telling me that this was really about the right way and the wrong way to do things. Wasn't it, Camille? Wasn't there some MPP out of Ontario? I'm going to link to this tweet (laughs) so folks can see it, but this was amazing. I, I just saw this last night, and it was an MPP called Lindsay Park. She's an MPP in Durham. And interestingly, so she puts out this video, and I suspect she's doing it because she's probably hearing from a lot of her constituents about this. But she's put out this video where she's inside some sort of firm, and she's saying that, uh, you know, first of all, she claims that Ontario has the strictest animal cruelty laws in the the country, I think she says, with the highest penalties, which... um, is you know all well and good in one sense, but she leaves out the part where firms are basically exempt from these animal cruelty laws. So there's that. Why stop there, Camille? Um, while you're you know exaggerating facts, you might as well uh, say that we're the best in the world, right? I mean, just keep going. We've heard that before too, haven't we? Yeah, sure, sure. And, and then she provides this number that people can call if they have concerns about animal cruelty where they can report that animal cruelty instead of trespassing oh, and doing oh, bad things. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. A number, Camille. Whoa, a number. Fantastic. I know. Do you know, Camille, it's funny. It's funny because um, I tried that number and because um, I saw some animal cruelty when I was in Ontario visiting. I saw, and Camille, can I just play for you what I got when I called it? Okay. Beep. I'm sorry. This number is not in service. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. No, I'm sure it actually is in service. I'm sure it goes to uh, an answering machine whereby, you know, it can be checked and eventually someone can get back to you and tell you, well, yes, what they will tell you, Camille, as I told my students, is while that may look like cruelty, you're, you're actually confused because it's covered by the agriculture exemption in the OSPCA Act. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the number actually goes to inspectors who will listen to a complaint and take it. But the problem is, who is going to do that complaint? Who's going to see something and be a witness and then report it to authorities? The answer is nobody because farms aren't public. Nobody can go on there unless they're an employee. So who exactly (laughs) do you think is going to be walking around seeing animal cruelty and reporting it? The answer is nobody. Silly me. That's right. I like how she advertises the hotline on the same number of how you're not supposed to go on farms. It's the same. You know, we have a hotline for any abuse you see on a farm. You know what that reminds me of, Camille? What? It's like, you know, it's like it's like saying we have a special hotline to deal with any, you know, troublesome situations that you ever see in a mining operation. If you see any, let us know. Fantastic. Yeah. That's yeah. But very at the same, helpful. Very and, helpful. But, you know, to take this one step further and turn it into an egg gag situation, just to make sure their bases are government, covered, the government would also want to make it illegal for any miners to actually report stuff. Just the public. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's Just true. the public. <laughs> if they happen to see something inside a mine, you know, but the miners you know, can't report it. You know, if you're ever, you know, wandering into a mine accidentally because that would be an offense if you did it you know not accidentally if you're ever you know there or you get an invitation and you happen to see something well by all means you report it yeah yeah so that's a gig oh, for god, you folks Camille. we're working oh, on it god the all right world well, we live in in some more positive news we saw Ooh. a big win for vegans in the uk the other week so there, there's a case there about ethical veganism 
And a tribunal has ruled that it is a protected belief, and people who are ethically vegan are entitled to human rights protections. Have you seen this piece already? I have uh, had a quick look, Camille, and what can I say other than I love it? Like you, this has been one of, I don't want to say hobby horses. Oop, ducking. I don't know if it's been a hobby horse of mine, but it's been a long-running interest. This has been something I've been into for years. We've talked about it before on the podcast. To me, the more we can normalize veganism and ensure that vegan beliefs are protected, uh, the better off we will be in the long run in terms of advocating for animals. Yeah, no, super interesting and important case. And I think it's a very helpful international precedent for the work that we're doing here in Ontario, uh, involving a case with the, the vegan firefighter who was uh, sent home and punished at his job for demanding vegan food while he was out there on the road. So, um, you know, hopefully some good news here as well. But, but just to give you a little idea about the facts of this case in the UK, uh, the man who brought the case forward was himself an ethical vegan, and he worked at a nonprofit that... Um, Worked. It was called the League Against Cruel Sports, so it worked against things like fox hunting and other cruel sports. And he found out that the organization's pension fund was investing in companies that tested on animals or weren't cruelty-free in some way. So he brought this forward, and he was subsequently dismissed. And he says that there's a nexus between his dismissal and his concerns over the pension fund assets. So they haven't decided yet whether there is a nexus there and whether he was actually facing discrimination, but the tribunal did say that at least his belief in ethical veganism is protected. So cool case, we'll follow it for sure and keep you updated on all these international developments. Very, very exciting, Camille. And uh, it would not be a story or a uh, podcast about animals if we did not uh, at least touch base or touch on uh, one of the great tragedies of the world going on right now that involves animals, and that is the uh, the Australian wildfires, uh, a story that's... You know, very special to me, especially I've spent a lot of time in Australia. It was like one of my favorite places when I lived in New Zealand. I've been there many, many times. I've been to most of the areas that are under fire right now. And simply just uh, for our purposes, what this story is doing to wildlife and all Australian animals. Oh, my God. I've been so depressed about this, to be honest with you. It's just overwhelming. Um, Estimates suggests that about half a billion wild animals have died so far. I'm not sure if that includes the farmed animals who are dying because they're victims as well. It's nearly impossible to evacuate them from these fire zones because farmers don't think that far ahead and it's just frankly not fiscally in their interests to do it. So they typically don't evacuate in the face of a disaster. Uh, and, you know, meanwhile, so, you know, th these animals are, are being killed by these fires. They're starving, they're being burned, they're suffering from dehydration. And the root cause of, uh, you know, much of what's going on, certainly our global warming climate, also links back to animal agriculture. So you see on the one hand, animals being exploited and killed for their bodies so people can consume them, a hugely inefficient process that contributes to climate change. And on the other hand, animals elsewhere are paying the price for our reliance on meat. Yeah, there's a, uh, I want to link in the show notes to a, uh, uh, a story that came out um, um, on the ABC, which is the Australian Broadcasting uh, Corporation uh, website. It was written by a, a good friend of mine and a professor at uh, University of Melbourne. Uh, the, uh, by, uh, her name is Javon O'Sullivan, and she wrote an, a really interesting opinion piece that was really, I think, Camille, really just designed, again, to get people to think 
about what's going on and to think differently about what's going on. And, and it's entitled The Animals We Rescue and the Animals We Don't. And she sort of touches on the way in which different animals get different treatment in this crisis. And she points out that like she she's a very big believer in different categories of animals and how we categorize them for our purposes. And she looks at the three types of animals and she goes, well, companion animals have done really well in this emergency. And she says, I'm sure some have died. But for the most part, she says it's a really good thing that the uh, circle of compassion is now extending to companion animals, meaning that when people are evacuated, we're not telling them you have to leave your dogs at home. Right. And she says that's not a small thing. There have been disasters in the past where evacuations refuse to take animals. And she's like, no, the animals are our people are being evacuated with their animals. That's great. And then she goes on to point out while Australian wildlife have obviously died in vast numbers, people care about them. Right. So it's like people are making donations to various funds to help out with trauma centers for all the amazing Australian wildlife. But then she goes out to point out that all the livestock, you know, the cattle, they're all dying, too. And there's no there's simply no campaign about it. They're just they're not even, as you point out, no one's trying to rescue them. No one's trying to remove them from the area. And as a result, you know, it's sort of it's it's she's not making a point about right or wrong. She's really just making a point about how crazy our characterization is and how it's just a way uh, we think and treat the non-human world. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really sad. Um, those divisions obviously exist, and they color the way that we treat all kinds of animals. But you know, here's here's a very stark example of the consequences of it. You know, I also want to mention, Peter. I don't know if you've seen any of the posts online, but our friend Joanne MacArthur of We Animals Media has traveled to Australia and is there photographing uh, the situation on the ground for animals. So she's got some pretty stunning images of animals being rescued and exactly how bad it is for them. Um, some of them are are inspirational, some of them are pretty sad, but it's it's worth checking out if you want a first-hand look at what's happening. Absolutely. Well, all right. That's uh, a great uh, segue, actually. We're going to head into our uh, main topic because our main topic comes from someone uh, living in that part of the world, as it were, Camille. Not uh, quite as dry a part of the world. It's really difficult for me to imagine uh, New Zealand ever suffering from wildfires. It's like one of the wettest places in the world. And it's, uh, I suppose, parts of the country could suffer from wildfires in the right circumstances. But uh, right now, they're mainly suffering from the smoke that's across uh, the Tasman Sea and is, is blanketing parts of New Zealand. But neither here nor there. That is not the discussion we had here. Um, we got to uh, speak with senior lecturer at the University of Otago, uh, Marcelo Rodriguez Ferreira, uh, uh, someone I have known for a while. He is teaching animal law in New Zealand. And since I left, he is, I believe, the only one teaching full-time and the only uh, full-time tenured member of faculty doing so. And he has a lot of interesting things to say about New Zealand's animal welfare regime. All right, I am here today with Marcelo, Marcelo Rodriguez Ferrer, who is uh, a New Zealander, which of course is very special for me. As uh, as as Camille and I have noted, I um, I'm, I am a New Zealand citizen and spent my first ten years um, in New Zealand uh, teaching and studying animal law at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And when I left, I was very depressed and despondent, thinking that animal law would just uh, fall off the map in that country. And instead, along came this uh, young man who started 
started right after I left, I believe, uh, Marcelo Rodriguez Ferrer. So welcome to Paw and Order. Nice to be here, Peter. Now, tell me, I just said you started right after I left. When did you start your career at, as a lecturer at uh, University of Otago? 2012, so pretty much exactly just after you left. Wow, that is about a year. Yeah, I left at the end of 2010, and you started right after that. Fantastic. And um, you uh, teach animal law, is that correct? That's right. been teaching it since 2013. Fantastic. So I'm glad to hear that someone's still doing that uh, down in New Zealand. And um, you've become uh, doing a lot of research and stuff like that on animals and the law in New Zealand. So to, to me, the situation of animals and the law in New Zealand is straightforward. But for our listeners, I think it would be interesting to hear a little bit about the relationship uh, between animals and the law in your home country. Um, yeah, I mean, New Zealand is in a, an odd position, I think. We depend upon agriculture as the backbone of the national economy we don't have any tar sands or sort of forestry or the sorts of things that keep Canadians in business um, and so we have a really sort of fraught relationship with animals we depend upon them for everything uh, and that means that we really need to make sure that our animal welfare legislation and enforcement frameworks are the best they can be. I've heard that many times. I lived there for many years, and what I heard was New Zealand has the best animal welfare protection system in the world. Have you heard that before, Marcel? I certainly have. <laughs> and did you find it? As, it's, 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 it's interesting because, you know, when I was there, it was interesting. Of course, when I was in New Zealand, I was doing criti critical, you know, appraisal of New Zealand law, and I was pointing out shortcomings. And then, you know, I came to Canada, and I realized that things in New Zealand weren't quite so bad. But I think it's fair to say that... They're never quite as good as the government makes them sound, and they're probably not quite as bad as advocates make them sound in relative terms. That's about right. I think New Zealand's framework and our legislation is probably one of the best in the world on paper, but it's all about the actual enforcement of that framework, and it's all about the actual implementation of the legislation and the framework that we've got there, and that leaves much to be desired. Okay, so you're doing some research specifically on that area. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your research on animal uh, welfare enforcement in New Zealand? Yeah, so last year, I guess for the last 18 months, um, did a bit of a deep dive in terms of how our animal welfare legislation is actually enforced. So had a look at the different enforcement agencies, um, both government and non-government, in terms of uh, our Ministry for Primary Industries, I guess it's similar to the a Department of Agriculture. Uh, and our SPCA and had a look at exactly how effective those agencies are in the way that they enforce the legislation that we've got. Yeah, so one of my, um, one of my, I remember, now I'm remembering I did a presentation for a long time about New Zealand and the way in which they enforce things, and I did a really funny uh, couple of slides, and I would talk about, uh, you know, I would talk about, uh, you know, do we have enough enforcement in um, New Zealand, and at the time, I actually knew how many investigators and lawyers worked at the Ministry of Primary Industries, and I had a little slide where I didn't know, but I estimated their salaries, and I, I had this slide, and it's like... At the time, I can't remember exactly the number. It was like it was six investigators, three lawyers. I threw in admin staff. I threw in, you know, how like where they're housed and all this. And I did this, and I came up with a number. And I said, you know, I don't remember what it was, but let's say it was like three million annually. And then at the bottom, I said, look, I don't want people to think I'm being unfair, so I might be off for a bit. So just to be safe, let's triple it, right? Just to be safe. And it came out to nine million dollars. And then I gave the comparative agriculture budget 
just in the government agriculture budget. Or And then I talked about how much agriculture was bringing to New Zealand, and the numbers were so staggering. And then, of course, my next slide was, and how much does the SPCA get from government as the primary enforcement agency in that country? And the answer was zero. It's still zero, unfortunately. There might be a little bit of government funding for a, a couple of education uh, initiatives the SPCA, but for its primary enforcement um, uh, inspectorate, it gets zero um, from from government. And the so again, I, as I understand it, the uh, and I understand it fairly well because I was there looking at it. The when we're talking about enforcement in New Zealand, I realize there are some other agencies. I, I, I'm. I, I have to ask whether AWINS still has authority in, in New Zealand technically to do investigations. No, uh, it doesn't. AWINS didn't really exist when I was there. It was just a brainchild of one person who never did anything with it, but it had authority, but that's been removed. Uh, yeah, Neil Wells, who was behind it, he, uh, he died a couple of years ago, actually. Yeah, uh, and so along with it, actually a couple of years before that, it was removed as an enforcement agency. I think maybe maybe charitably, um, I guess no pun intended, there was an idea that you could have a proliferation of enforcement agencies and so could really sort of create a bit of a patchwork quilt that would, would be a little bit better, but it, it, well, it's a terrible idea and it hasn't really come across anyway. So we're really talking about the Ministry of Primary Industries and the SPCA, is that fair to say? Uh, the, the police a little bit, 100 prosecutions a year from the police, but, um, but yeah, MPI and SPCA. So is the division, let's just talk about it, is the division effectively agricultural versus domestic or does the SPCA still do the odd agricultural prosecution? So there's a memorandum of understanding between the agencies that basically split the jurisdiction in the way that you've described, but the SPCA occasionally engages in what we would call in New Zealand uh, lifestyle blocks and maybe in Canada hobby farms, those sorts of non- uh, I guess, commercial uh, farming operations. The SPCA still has jurisdiction over those. Okay, so what? let's talk about the Ministry of Primary Industries and what are some of the issues involving with enforcement. My guess is that one of them is going to be not enough enforcement, but what are, what are some of the issues you've discovered in your research? Yeah, so it's the obvious one, which is they just do not get enough funding, therefore they do not have enough inspectors, and therefore there is just a reactive approach to enforcement rather than any sort of proactive enforcement at all. But the research that we did really uncovered a lack of oversight as being almost a more important problem. So the SPCA, a private charity, isn't subject to what we would call Official Information Act requests and Canada Freedom of Information. Uh, and that's a problem because if we have an agency that is enforcing an aspect of the criminal law, we really need to make sure that they are accountable and overseen in a, in a responsive way. And that is just not occurring at the moment. In Canada, one might say that might be a constitutional principle if you've read <laughs> the decision in Bogarts versus Ontario, which I do not have high hopes will be adopted. But I, I do think the idea that a, that a police uh, investigative agency has to be accountable to the public strikes me as a very sound one. Can you explain why that is to our listeners? Yeah, so I guess Bogarts is a really interesting case and sort of highlights this sort of Important. It's not just a constitutional principle, it's just a sensible principle, I guess, in terms of if you are going to be exerting public state power um, and engaging in sort of restrictions and infringements on people's rights to liberty and privacy or whatever, um, then it's really important that the people that are doing it are accountable, can be held to account, and so that that power isn't exercised, uh, I guess, arbitrarily or invalidly. Um, it's kind of a cornerstone 
of any liberal democracy. And it's a bit of a lacuna, I think, when it comes to sort of animal welfare. History explains why the lacuna is there, but still it doesn't make a lot of sense to allow a private organisation to engage in what should be ultimately a state-run um, enforcement. I used to say, uh, I had many good sayings, they're all coming back to me back when I was in New Zealand, and I say this, and I think I say this in my, my never-to-be-finished or one-day-to-be-finished book, where I write this whole thing and I say something along the lines of, um, if you wanted to uh, design a system that produces terrible outcomes and, you know, sets it up, you'd, you'd essentially design the system that we have, where you have multiple agencies dividing jurisdiction. That's the way it is. Even more so in Canada, you told me that, um, that in New Zealand, at least the SPCA has come together under one umbrella. But here we have divided SPCA, so they're at battle with each other. The police has jurisdiction. The agriculture, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, it's like, set up lots of people so that when nobody wants to do a prosecution, they can all say it's the other guy's fault. That, that's exactly right. Um, things are slowly improving in New Zealand, but it is ever so slow. The SPCA, so for the listeners at home, New Zealand's a population of 5 million, um, and we had something in the order of 28 different SPCAs scattered around the country. Some of them would have inspectors, some of them wouldn't, and it, it was a, a real mess that's now been sort of brought into one sort of agency, but still, it, it's it's not perfect. The amalgamation hasn't gone particularly smoothly. It's a pretty politically fraud organisation and a fraud industry, really. So I think one of the problems, of course, is that it's all well and good to say that, um, you know, government should... Um you know, to improve some of the system, one of the things government should do is obviously uh, modernize its system of investigations and perhaps put some funding behind. But of course, that costs money. But what we're finding in Canada, it's very interesting. You must be interested to look at Canada because what's happening is that fear of, oh, if we don't do it, nobody will, is starting to be exposed a bit in Canada as the SPCAs are pulling out and yeah. governments are being forced to come up with new ideas. What does that say to you in New Zealand? I, I see Canada as essentially an example of what happens if you just let this model run its course. What ends up happening is it falls apart, right? And eventually you find that the SBCA is justifiably, I think, sort of criticised from a constitutional perspective and the state has to sort of step into the breach. And I only hope that the Ontario decision, I know it's had sort of ramifications, it probably will get sort of dismissed on appeal, but I hope that it sort of allows for structural change to start regardless really of the result. I know they'll have to sort of step into the SPCA's shoes and I hope that it's the public organisation and the public run um, agency that does step into that gap rather than just another private organisation repeat all of the same mistakes that have been committed since time immemorial. So I guess that's my next question, right? Is like sort of like, who, who's... It, it, as I recall in New Zealand, it's like who who is resistant to this idea of of actually you know changing it and 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 you know you think it was the government, but at times like it was the SPCA too. Like they want their power. Like that gives them the idea of being that. Like that's certainly been the case in Canada. We've seen that in Ontario, the Ontario SPCA has given it up quite voluntarily, and others are fighting tooth and nail to retain it. What's that situation like in New Zealand? I think the SPCA justifiably say we have been prosecuting and enforcing uh, animal welfare um, since it existed in the first place. Um, and so we've been doing it. Why would you take it away from us? 
Um, we've been the only ones that have actually cared about this. And now you come along and Mr. Government and you think that you care about it more than us. Well, we're on the ground and we know what we're doing and we can do it better. And so there's sort of like a territorialism that goes along there. And I think it's not necessarily completely unjustified, but I think if you look at it from a broader policy perspective, as you say, you'd never design it in this way in your wildest dreams. It's stuff out of Victorian England and the way that it's set up, and it's just not appropriate in the 21st century. Yeah, absolutely, and I've heard that too. Like, we know what we're doing, and we know, and I'm like, I'm like, that has not been my experience at all. It's like the turnover in the SBCAs means that you lose a lot of good people constantly. And this idea that like suddenly they're doing this efficiently, there's no doubt that a lot of them know animals. But the idea that they know enforcement and investigation seems to me to be something else uh, quite entirely. Uh, deeply problematic. I think that you have a lot of good intentions, but I think there's a lack of institutional knowledge, of, funnily enough, because of that high turnover and because of, uh, I think, a lot of... Com- compassion fatigue goes along with that right people trying to do the right thing and then sort of driving themselves a bit insane given the system is so set up against them um and so yeah i just do not see the spca um as having the longevity that maybe it's um yeah i i I don't think it's going to last as a model for very much longer now i want to finish up on this but uh You've, you've, I know you've read some of my work and, um, you know, I think I got some flack back in the day when I said that uh, I remember writing one of my early pieces and talking about New Zealand being seen as one of the animal welfare leaders in the world because of their progressive great ape legislation. And, and I don't mean to slag it. I do think symbolism is important. And I do think, I do think, I do think symbolism matters. But I did kind of have to point out the fact that they essentially abolished research on primates that was not actually happening in the country. So uh, what, what is your view of, uh, you know, the fact that this is regarded as, well, it's one of the first things to get rights to animals but they were rights that those animals were never in danger of losing anyway well not only do i completely agree with you on that and it's a sort of just an awful almost cynical symbolic um gesture new zealand has done it all over again so our amendment legislation in 2015 banned cosmetic testing on animals wow that sounds fantastic until you realize that we've never tested cosmetics on animals and wow we've recognized that animals are sentient but we've put it in a way that means that it has absolutely no legislative purchase whatsoever so we've got a great track record of symbolism not such a great record of actually doing things i said it would be like uh, canada banning uh, the hunting of kangaroos it would essentially it would essentially be a great thing we are just banning kangaroo hunting this is awesome yeah it sounds sounds great right (laughs) it means nothing Marcelo, it's been a great pleasure. I look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon in the future. It's been an honor to be on Porn Order. Heroes and Zeros. All right, and now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Very excited. Our zero today is a follow-up on something that we discussed on the very last episode of 2019. Oh, very tragic situation. But we were telling you that the Supreme Court was going to make a decision on whether the Lucy the Elephant case would be granted leave to be heard at the Supreme Court. And the decision came out and the answer, sadly, was no. And it was right around Christmas, Camille. 
And like, you know, the Grinch, they also tacked on a nice healthy costs award, meaning that those wonderful advocates who risked their own time and money to bring a case to the court that really is of public interest have to now pay the Edmonton Zoo, like the ultimate form of insult. They have to pay the Edmonton Zoo money. And let me just say that the costs award is sort of this extra little slap the Supreme Court throws on sometimes when it says, well, your case just wasn't worth being here. Because they don't have to do it. It's discretionary. Yeah, it's especially disappointing because they didn't have to. It's, it really is a slap in the face. And just so disappointing that this case won't be heard because it really did deserve it. And in case they thought, Camille, that by releasing their decision right after we did our Christmas show, we wouldn't, you know, we'd forget about it over the, you know, the Christmas break. <laughs> we did not forget. We promised on Twitter that the Supreme Court was going to be our zero. And they are. And it's a deserving zero. And I'm deeply disappointed. I don't understand the decision. I didn't understand it the first time, Camille, that they did it. Um, because what we have here is now two cases from Alberta showing a novel issue about the ability to raise the interests of animals where they are within the treatment of government. You have a rich factual matrix, which, as I said, with two decisions, two dissents from the Alberta Court of Appeal, and apparently it's still not enough to convince the Supreme Court that these matters need to be decided by our highest body. And I just think that's incredibly disappointing. I think one of the things they underestimate is how difficult it is to bring these cases before the court. And I think, you know, sometimes um, what happens in these cases, one of the reasons I think they tend not to hear them is not that they're not of national importance, although that might have been part of their thinking. Sometimes the court is concerned they don't have enough. There's, you know, it hasn't been decided in enough provinces, right? They don't have enough of a comparative view. But I think they underestimate how hard it is to bring these challenges before the courts. Like, it's just, it's costly. It's time consuming. We're dealing with small organizations. And I think it's just, I think it's really problematic that when you've got these incredibly, you know, very detailed factual matrix. This wasn't a case that was just thrown together in an application and that's the end of it. It was a really complex case with a lot of moving parts with a deep factual record. And the Supreme Court says, well, we're still not going to hear it. And the, the only thing I can take from it is that they think it's just not important enough to hear. And I just think they're dead wrong. So it's rare that I say something so strongly about the court. But I, I do feel like this was a matter, however they resolved it, that really needed and deserved to be heard. So I give them a big zero and my heart goes out to the advocates who really tried so hard and put so much effort in to get such an important case before the Supreme Court. Yeah, we, we really appreciate the efforts of all the advocates and, and particularly Zuchak, who never stopped pushing this case for Lucy. I don't know if this is the end of the road or if there's more to come. There may well be more to come and more ideas might emerge. Uh, but, you know, she's getting old. Her health is not great. It may well be the case that she can't even be moved out of the zoo now because they've let her sit there for so long with such serious health problems that maybe could have been solved if they'd sent her to a sanctuary earlier. So it's just a disappointing decision all around. Uh, the Supreme Court shouldn't be above criticism. It's a policy court, fundamentally. And I think their decision to leave, to take a pass on this one, uh, really starves the Canadian community and the public of some important jurisprudence. Yeah, and with respect to the particular uh, uh, case, you know, we're dealing with here, which is Lucy the Elephant, I, I just don't see the advocates going back for a third go. It's like essentially on both occasions they've been told by the Alberta courts that, well, you're just not doing this the right way. 
So find another way to do it. Well, it's essentially part of the problem that they raised in their leave application was that they're shooting in the dark. There is no established way to do this. We need guidance on how to do it. All we're getting from the Alberta courts is you're not doing it the right way. But that just seems like, you know, telling you to go and try and find something. And when you exhaust every possible mechanism, then maybe we'll consider it or maybe not. Like that's that it's just it's just it is it is ludicrous to me and shows the inefficiencies sometimes of the court process of requiring litigants who are trying to advance novel claims to sort of guess their way through the process. You know, when I'm dealing with a standard claim in my criminal practice, Camille, I may win and I may lose, but I know the way it works. Everybody does. Civil lawyers understand. But whenever you're running one of these animal claims, you're always shooting out into the dark. And you're just trying new things. We saw it with the glue trap case in Ontario, Camille. And again, not to comment on the merits of that particular case, but again, they're just like, well, we don't know what to do. Nobody knows. And nobody tells them. It's just like, well, go try this other crazy, I think, or whatever. And eventually you run out of options to try. Yeah. Now, the reality is this is an evolving area of law and jurisprudence. And at some point, policymakers, whether that be legislators or the courts, are going to have to respond to the public's demand that these cases be listened to. It's it's not enough just to brush them away and say, oh, try again in some other way. I think we'll eventually get to, to the point where we do get some guidance on it. But I hope that point comes soon because there's a lot of animals suffering in the meantime. Sooner rather than later, Camille, let's certainly hope. Yeah. And for every zero, there's a hero. We see we did things in reverse order this week. The hero this week is a lawyer in Vancouver named Kyla Lee. Kyla Lee. Hey, Kyla, how's it going? I think she listens to the show, Camille. I think she may. Kyla has her own podcast about driving law, and you can find her on Twitter at IRP Lawyer. But she's awesome. And she does this really cool video series called Cases That Should Have Gone to the Supreme Court But Didn't. And she chose to emphasize the Lucy case in her most recent episode. Yes, she did. And I watched it. It's really, for the, we'll link to it in the show notes. The, one of the beauties of this, and I'm sure Kyla's well aware of this, is that it's a tidy two to three minutes. She doesn't go on for like an hour and a half like we do. <laughs> it's like a tidy two to three minute segment. But it's great. I watched it. She sort of sets out the Lucy case. She explains in two to three minutes, unlike, you know, us, Camille, we take like 20 minutes we to just discuss rant. the Lucy case. Yeah, she does it for two to three minutes, explains the case, explains why the court should have granted leave. It's cases that should have gone to the Supreme Court but didn't. And then she's out. And I think it's great for people who want to primer sort of an overview of uh, why this was such an important case and why it deserved to be heard. Go take a look at Kyla Lee's uh, very interesting uh, video podcast. In fact, I think, Camille, if we were doing this correctly, we would say Clawby award-winning Kyla Lee. Is that right? Uh, that, that's right. That's right. Kyla's uh, an award-winning I individual what she herself. Won for. I think she also won what a Top she, 25 Most Influential Lawyer Award. Yeah, she did that last year, but I think she won a podcast. I don't think she won podcast. I don't remember what she won, but she won something. Maybe on for Flobby. her Twitter I feed. I think she name. got an award for having an awesome Twitter feed. Yeah, quite possible. Yeah, she has a really detailed Twitter feed. Fantastic. Well, Kyla, uh, you, that's your first time being a hero, um, and you know, top twenty-five influential. Yeah, whatever. You know, Clawby, pretty good, but hero on Pawn Order. <laughs> that's got to be first. First on the CV, wouldn't you say, Camille? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I say that leads the CV. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our show. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Looking forward to see you on the next episode of Paw and Order.
We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!